Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, Harvard professor Roland Fryer reveals the intense pressure, including death threats, that were brought against him for research that didn't match progressive expectations. Tanya Shellnut joins me to talk about the pain her son's marijuana use brought to their family. We will take a look at how progressive experts often embarrass themselves, and we'll look at some disadvantages both political parties have heading into the race for the White House. This is Dr. Tony Beam, and it's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in if you're watching live on Facebook or YouTube. Howdy. Good to see you this morning. Hope you're having a great day so far. And I hope nobody comes along and messes it up for you, which is sometimes what happens. Um, It's good to be back here on a Tuesday morning. We've got a medical affairs subcommittee meeting coming up tomorrow in Columbia. It's going to be important. And I'll start out this morning by telling you about that just a little bit. The Medical Affairs Subcommittee is going to decide whether to vote to send um, the uh, gender bill, which would prevent minors from getting puberty blockers, cross-hormone treatments, and gender reassignment surgery, uh, whether that bill is going to be voted on and sent to the full committee, which from there will have to go from the full committee, medical affairs to the floor of the Senate, be set for special order, if it has a chance to pass for the end of the session. So um, as we talked about in detail yesterday, not going to go back into all that, but uh, tick-tock, tick-tock, as uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter would say, (laughs) if you've seen Silence of the Lambs. For whatever reason, that movie's been on TV a bunch later, but I can can just hear him saying, tick-tock, tick-tock. But the the clock is running in Columbia. That's the point. And it it takes a while for bills to to get through. We've, We've got until May. And uh, but the budget is looming, and so this needs to move. So we're hopeful that that's going to happen tomorrow in the Medical Affairs Subcommittee um, for this bill to have a chance to, to pass. All right, we got a big show. It's packed with a lot of stuff, so we're going to go ahead kind of and jump in to what's happening. Um, I, I think one thing that we've known for a long time about scientific research is that it's become little more than an outlet for political bias. I mean, the left likes to say, follow the science. And of course, that's, that's what they want you to do unless the research driving the science leads the reader away from the conclusion that progressives are pushing. So if, if for example, if, if you discover the gay gene, you're going to get funded for further research written up in scientific journals. You're going to be awarded a chair at a prestigious university. You're going to have your picture plastered on the front of every every left-leaning newspaper and on the cover of every progressive magazine. And you're going to be interviewed by every major TV and cable news network. But if your research challenges a left-wing talking point, uh, the long knives are coming out. And you're going to have your reputation in the scientific community destroyed And you'll be lucky if you ever get to work again. You'll be really lucky, if you're really lucky, I should say. Uh, Maybe your house won't be targeted by protesters, and maybe your children won't have to go into the Federal Witness Protection Program just to go to school and back every day. But that's kind of what happens to people 
who don't toe the party line if that party line is not progressive enough. So if you're Roland Fryer, who happens to be the youngest black tenured professor at Harvard, and your research debunks racial stereotypes involving police shootings, you get death threats, and eventually you get suspended from your job. And, of course, that's what happened to Roland Fryer. He's a Harvard professor of economics. Uh, he's the youngest black tenured professor at Harvard. His credentials as a scholar are impeccable. I mean, he's got an incredible reputation at, at Harvard and among his peers as, as being um, a, a scholar of, of some merit. That is, that his ability to do research has been recognized, his ability to have groundbreaking information as a professor, as a scholar, be accepted by his peers has been recognized. I mean, you look at some of the awards that he's won, just two that I'll mention. He's, he's, been, he's the winner of the MacArthur Genius Fellowship, and he also won the John Bates Clark Medal. Now, that medal is an award, and of course, it's, a, it's an actual medal. It's given to economists under 40 who have made significant contributions to the field. And this is, this is a guy who, who wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He, he didn't come from a background of a lot of advantages. I mean, as an African-American, he came from a humble background, um, which normally you would want to exalt someone who rises above their circumstances. See, Clarence Thomas has the same problem. And a lot of African-Americans in our culture today, if they overcome hardship, then that part of the story should be accentuated because it it demonstrates the resilience of of the human spirit and it, it you know this would be something that you would want to hear about a man who has achieved as much as he achieved because he has achieved so far because he's had to overcome a lot of shall we say hurdles in his life he comes from a humble background he was raised by his grandparents because his Mother was absent most of the time, and his father was in jail while he was growing up. And yet he was able to overcome all of these things. Now, his research that has come under question showed that while white police officers were slightly more likely to use excessive force when arresting or detaining a person of color, they were actually slightly more likely to shoot a white suspect than they were a black suspect. This is what he told Free Press publisher Barry Weiss in a recent interview. So what my paper showed was that, yes, we saw some bias in the low-level uses of force, every day pushing up against cars and things like that. People tend to like that result. But we didn't find any um, racial bias in police shootings. Now, that was really surprising to me because I expected to see it. The little-known fact is I had eight full-time RAs that it took to do this over nearly a year. When I found the surprising result, I hired eight fresh ones and redid it to make sure. They came up with the same exact answer, and I thought it was robust. And then I went to go give it, and my God, all hell broke loose. Well, it, it broke loose because when he shared the results of his research with his peers, they told him, look, you can publish the first part of this that indicated that more force is used by white police officers on minorities, but you can't publish the second part. He disregarded that advice. He published both results, and that's when the backlash hit him. And, I mean, it hit him hard. 
to defend himself. He granted interviews to the New York Times, uh, a lot of other major publications that he talked to to defend his research, but that only made the backlash against him that much more violent. Listen to what he said about the death threats that he got. I lived under police protection for about 30 or 40 days. I had a seven-day-old daughter at the time. So I, I was going to the grocery store to get diapers with an armed guard. It was crazy. It was really, truly crazy. Really, truly crazy. Absolutely. When you have to have an armed guard to go buy diapers. This is where he crossed swords at this particular moment with Claudine Gay, who was then the president of Harvard. She opened up a Title IX investigation accusing him of making off-color comments and telling inappropriate jokes to co-workers. Um, she then suspended him for two years without pay, and the reason given was for the research and behavior exhibiting a pattern of behavior that failed to meet Harvard's expectations. And all of this is widely reported in the media, um, all the, the information about the Title IX infractions, some of the things that he said that were considered to be inappropriate, but he wasn't fired because firing a tenured professor would require board action. So he's now back teaching at Harvard, and he says that he went back because he wanted everyone to know that he could go back. He said many of the facts of his case were exaggerated. Some of the facts were not true. And so now he's back at Harvard now that Claudine Gay is no longer there. So this is the kind of thing that happens to people who do good work, who do valid research, and the findings that they come up with run contrary to what progressives think should be published. I mean, we, we're seeing this happen right now at the New York Times. There's another story out today. Uh, I think it actually came out yesterday about how the Times is taking a lot of heat because they're beginning to publish the truth about transgender surgeries and puberty block blocking treatments on minors. There, there, there was a, an editorial that was uh, published, let's see, where are we? It was the middle of last week, or maybe, maybe it was the beginning of last week, that I was just stunned that it showed up in the New York Times because it talked about, I mean, very much the fact that minors were having a lot of regrets who have transgender surgery. They were suffering the effects that come from puberty blockers uh, that includes a loss of bone density. Um, it turns out that this editorial pointed out truthfully that there were a group of scholars from Europe who are, have said that the reason many of these clinics in Europe that were sort of founded for transgender or um, gender affirming care, which is the standard mantra, those clinics are closing. They're, they're changing their tactics. They're realizing that that kind of, of care for minors is much more destructive than it is helpful. And yet in this country, the transgender movement seems to be doubling down. So when, when research shows, research demonstrates that the progressive party line is not true, if you're the researcher, you end up getting death threats. If your research shows some progressive party line is true or it backs it up in any way or whether it's good research or not, then as long as it lines up with the party line, then you become a superstar.
to the left. And that's not the way science is supposed to work. Science is supposed to take you where the facts lead. And that only works when the research has integrity, that you don't start out looking for a conclusion or trying to prove something that you already assume. You start out with an open-ended question and you let the evidence and the research and the facts that you discover take you to the conclusion. And that's, that's what we're missing in scientific research today. I and mean, it's very, I, I mean, it's, it's very sad. It's sad for the researchers. Um, it's sad that someone like Roland Fryer, who has demonstrated just an incredible amount of scholarship and research ability, that he's risen to a point of being at Harvard University, winning awards at his age, at his young age. Uh, he's got a brilliant career ahead of him unless he continues to run into people who decide that his research is not any good simply because it doesn't back up what progressives want to prove. And progressives want to prove systemic racism among police departments. They want to shut down funding for police. And in doing so, they're creating all these problems in major cities like Chicago, like Washington, D.C., where you've got a revolt on city council right now in Washington over the fact that the crime rate is so terrible, and yet you've got um, council members who are pushing for more cuts to police officers' salaries or to the number of police officers. You've got uh, council members that are asking for more lenient or no-bail policies. I mean, it, it, these are things that are demonstrably able to, to prove that chaos is going to be the result if you go down that road. And yet, down the road they go, because it's the only road they know when it comes to progressive thinking. It must be right, because we think so. That's where the experts get involved. Now, we got another story coming up a little bit later in the show about experts and how they sort of embarrass themselves. We, we got into this a little bit yesterday when we talked about the results of all these historians that got together to rank the presidents. And I just mentioned it in passing. Um, in a few minutes, we're going to dive into it a little bit more deeply. But right now, we're waiting for a phone call from Tanya Shellnut. She's a friend of mine, colleague of mine. Um, she's going to be calling in here in a few minutes to talk about an experience that uh, her son had with marijuana. Because we're coming up in South Carolina, we, the Senate has passed medical marijuana again. And it's, it's now whether it's going to come up in the House, how it's going to be treated in the House, whether it's going to get a hearing over there, I don't know. But I do know that the effects of marijuana are devastating. And it, it, it's, we're, we're going to get a good example of that right now. So welcome to the program, Tanya Shellnut. Tanya, thanks for calling in this morning. Yes. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing fine. Tanya and I are friends, and we're colleagues, and uh, we'll just leave it at that because she's calling in this morning not as a representative of the people that she works for or anything professionally that she's tied to, but she's calling in with a very personal story about something that happened with her son involving marijuana. Um, and I'll, I'll just tell you, um, Tanya, Tanya and I work together quite frequently. Um, she is a, a, an amazing person balancing uh, a professional career with her family and doing so quite well. So Tanya, I just want you to tell your story. Sure. And I'll be um, honest and tell you that this is the first time that we've ever talked publicly about it. Wow. Um, but my husband and I 
um, talked about it and I, we just, we have to do everything that we can to stop this. And I might be a little emotional about it because first off, it is the first time that I've spoken about it. But secondly, I'm so passionate about this because I'm so tired of seeing people use our children as pawns for financial gain, having no idea what it does. And so, you know, this started when my son was probably 15 years old and he um, had gotten in with a group that was making some bad decisions and it included marijuana. And we you know, started to see some behavioral changes. And normally he's very uh, positive, good student. Um, and we just saw some behavioral changes. And I was like, what is going on? Um, and then we discovered um, that he was smoking marijuana. So then we um, said, okay, listen, this is not okay. Like, we're going to have to drug test you. Um, and so we wow. started drug testing him, making sure that he stayed on the straight and narrow. And when we started doing that, what they would do is they would vape. They could get THC and they could vape it. And so some of the drug tests didn't pick that up. So they would, um, they even went as far as um, getting clean urine from friends to use that and hide for their drug test. Wow. And um, so when we discovered that this was happening and we discovered it because he was so angry and depressed and would isolate and was just going through all of these emotions. And, and we, that's, that wasn't like him. And we're like, what is going on? And so um, we just were very concerned about him. And eventually we were able to figure out that they were vaping um, the THC. We were able to find an appropriate um, uh, test that discovered it. And now, now let, me, so, let, me, let me stop you right ahead. here for a second because I, I want to ask you a couple of questions and I want, obviously mm -hmm. I want you to finish the story. First of all, uh, Tanya, thank you. I'm, I'm honored that you would tell the story um, publicly for the first time here. Um, mm -hmm. it's, I know it's hard. I mean, when you start talking about family issues, people that you love, um, that, that's, that's walking in a, in a place where faith is required, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about some of the behavior changes that you saw that really alerted you to this, because I think people listening, I, I bet there are parents that maybe are seeing some signs in their own teenagers that something's not quite right. And by knowing what to look for, maybe it would help them to help their teenager get out of, of if, it, if they are involved with smoking marijuana. So what... What, what was it that really tipped you off, you and your husband? Sorry. Oh, that's, um, a, that's okay. To, listen, I, I might cry with you. I, uh, this is a heartbreaking, hard thing. It really is, Tony. And I think to answer your question, what we saw was this just beautiful young man who was just, had such a sweet disposition, become extremely isolated and angry 
And to the point where, you know, saying things like he hated me, um, just things that you would never imagine would come out of his mouth. And to be clear, and, you had a good relationship with him up to this point. I mean, you, you, you and your yes. husband both, it was, it, it was a good yes. family dynamic and it changed. Yes, we had, yeah. yes, we had a great relationship with him. Um, he was, like I said, a very, um, funny and, um, outgoing and, um, just a sweet, sweet disposition. And when this all started, as I said, he just took a very sharp turn um, for the worst in the sense of the anger, the isolation, like just staying in his room for days on end, not really wanting to come out, being angry, just going to school um, and then coming home. Um, you know, he was involved in in sports. Um, so there was a little bit of an out there, but he was just, he just isolated and was depressed and angry. And so as we, you know, began to work through this and fig figure out, I mean, you, you see yeah. such a stark contrast in this behavior. Right. You're like, something is wrong. And the, the tipping point was, um, they were, um, at the house, him and his, this friend group at our house and they were downstairs and they were out back playing around and they came in and I smelled it and I was like what are you doing and because I was so shocked like I was just so shocked that this would be something that he would do and I was like are you smoking are you smoking weed and he was like no and I'm like yes you are like I smell this on you and so that was when I went to my husband and we talked to, you know, talked to him and discovered this. Well, I, like a month later, one of the friend group's cousin actually ended up dying from a fentanyl overdose laced in his marijuana. And you can imagine the fear oh my gosh. that took over our, you know, Absolutely. the moms and the dads. Sure. Because people don't understand marijuana is not what it used to be. And when we, we are seeing all this, these people come across our border and lace these drugs, you know, th it just takes one time and we lose our children. And so anyway, I'll stop there and let you ask the next question. Well, well the other, the other thing I would ask, um, and but first of all, you're exactly right. I mean, you don't know, it really is like playing Russian roulette. Um, when, when you, when you take up marijuana, um, because of the way fentanyl is being incorporated to cut cost and you just, you just don't know and, until it's too late sometimes. That's so, it's just horrible that that happened. Um, the, the addictive nature, people talk about, you know, they like to debate is, is marijuana really that addictive? Is it like other drugs? Um, and, and here's the thing that amazes me. Here you've got your, your son, um, wonderful relationship with him, good family dynamic. You begin to try to help him to see that this is destructive and to work with him to get him to stop using marijuana. And yet he finds all these ways around it. The, mm -hmm. the idea of using his, you know, his friend's clean urine. The, and, and by the way, when I was doing student life at North Greenwood University, 
we ran into this some. I mean, we had we had some marijuana use on campus. I mean, I I wish I could tell you that you know everything's always perfect in a Christian environment, but it's not. Right. These kids they they deal with the same temptations that everybody in the world deals with. Um, and and we we also found things like w- what you're talking about with vaping, where it was much harder mm-hmm. to detect. So my point mm-hmm. is this: he was addicted, wasn't he? Because he yes. was going to great lengths to work around, uh, even after it was discovered what he was doing. He wanted it bad enough to do these things to try to get around not doing it. Correct. That's yeah. a, absolutely correct. Yep. And the fact that they say that, you know, this isn't addicting or that this isn't going to impact our children, that's a lie. And this is the thing that is so upsetting to me is that so many of these people do not or have not experienced the effects that it does to our children. It is scientifically proven that marijuana use stunts the growth of the brain. So why are we going to make it even more easier for children to get this stuff and be able to continue again? And it goes back to my first statement. I'm tired. I'm tired, Tony, of everybody using our children as pawns for financial gain. It's not just medical marijuana. It's the gender procedure situation. It is always about using our children for financial gain. And at what point are people going to say enough is enough? We are destroying, I mean, even social media, what all of this, they're, they're destroying our children. Pornography. When are we going to get a pornography? I mean, we can go on and on and on. And at what point do we decide that their lives are worth a dollar amount? I'd like I'd like Senator Davis to tell me what at what point is my son's life, what's the dollar amount on him? Now, Senator Davis is going to argue that minors are not going to be able to get marijuana under this bill, uh, that this is for adults who are having, they have to demonstrate it's rigorous. You've got to demonstrate that uh, you have some sort of ailment that marijuana can treat and that's how you're going to be able to get a card, and you're only going to be able to get so much at a time, and and on and on and on. But the fact is that any opening of the door of an addictive substance, of a drug like this, is is it's not going. It's like saying that we're going to keep this tiger in the cage over here, and you leave the door open. You, you, well, we're going to trust that the tiger is going to stay in the cage. He's not going to get out and wreak havoc. No, this is. Once this becomes available, even as medical, um, it's going to be impossible to lock the door on it again. It's well, only going to. And expand. what I want to, what I want to know is if you look at all of the other states that have done this, yeah, and you actually look at real data, it's alarming. So I want to know why we think South Carolina is different. Why is it different? How is it going to be different? It's not. And it goes back to, again, we're ignoring data and studies and science all across the board and not just in the marijuana space, in everything on account of financial gain. And you're sitting and, and listening to the mom who lost her son, you know, because the marijuana was laced with the fentanyl, knowing that these children will go to any lengths to get these products 
you make it easier for them to have edibles, whatever it is, you're just opening the door for more youth death. Not only that, but this stuff is known to cause a tremendous amount of mental health issues. Right. I mean, we're still working through this. Yeah. Now he's on the right road and he's not using marijuana anymore, but he's still working through the issues of the two years that he spent, you know, numbing his brain. Right. He's still working through that. So it's not unrealistic to talk about the mental health components of marijuana. People think, oh, it's beneficial, and that's not true at all. The science shows that there's mental health disorders associated with it. Well, I'm thankful, first of all, that uh, your son is doing better. Praise the Lord for that. And I, hmm. I can't imagine the relief that, that you and your husband feel. And I'm, I'm thankful that his relationship with, with you and, and your husband, uh, you know, or his dad, are, are back are back on a, a good footing. Um, mm-hmm. But you know what? That's two years of his life. Yeah. And it's enough to deal with just to navigate through the teenage years um, than to have to face this kind of issue that potentially could have really derailed his entire future. And at That's the right. worst case scenario, put his life in danger because of the possibility right. of fentanyl. So right. I, I would encourage people, look, the... The um, medical marijuana has passed the Senate, so uh, mm-hmm. and it's going to be it's going over to the House, and whether it passes this term or not, it's going to depend on what the House decides to do with it. And your voice can make a difference. And and believe me, mm-hmm. what these House members are hearing, they're hearing from people who are well organized and well funded, and That's they right. are getting pounded about how they want medical marijuana. They want that bill to pass. They need to hear from you. They need to hear from people that are listening to this podcast, watching live on YouTube and Facebook right now. You need to contact your house member and tell them that you don't want to see this unleashed in South Carolina. We, South Carolina is a great place to live. It's a wonderful place to raise a family. Why do we want to yeah. risk changing the culture of this state with right. opening the door for something like marijuana, which is exactly, and I mean, you and I could go on and we could talk about, you, you know, you look at this bill and it's it's teeing up, regardless of what anybody says about it, it is teeing up the opening of recreational marijuana, which is the way that the money is going to get made. Nobody's going to get rich off of just right. medical marijuana, but so, so follow the money. We say that all the time. Okay. Look at who's going to benefit here. They're gonna, this is going to turn into a push for recreational marijuana, and it'll be hard. Like I said, once you open, leave that door open, um, it's really hard to close it again. Um, look, yeah, and I was actually looking on the website last night regarding um, the marijuana, and there's the, the amount of um, medical marijuana websites for South Carolina ready for you to get your card. Um, it's it's crazy, Tony. I was like, are you kidding me? Then they all say, we don't have it yet, but we're going to get it and get signed up. Here's your card. There's not even any regulation on that point too. So that's a whole nother conversation right there, but it's just, we've got to protect our children. This is just so much bigger than, than medical marijuana. And all we have to do is look at these other States. 
Well, and while you're contacting um, legislators, uh, you, you brought this up, Tanya. I think it's exactly right because it is all about children. I mean, you look at the bills that we've got teed up that we could pass, that we could do so much good in South Carolina mm-hmm. to protect our children. Stopping medical marijuana would be one. Passing mm-hmm. the, this uh, do-no-harm bill would be another. Yeah. We've got to get it out of subcommittee, hopefully tomorrow, to the full committee, to the how, to the Senate floor. It's got to be set for special order. The clock's ticking. I mean, we, we need That's to get right. this done. Uh, we also have the opportunity to protect minors from the devastation of pornography. You know, by the time, if, if you hand your child a smartphone, uh, you're handing them access to pornography. That's just the way it is in the culture that we live today. And this bill that is already passed the House overwhelmingly, I think it's like 113 to 1, something like that. It goes over to the Senate. Now we need to get it. We need to get it passed to protect minors from pornography. We need to have parental involvement when it comes to social media. You mentioned social media. Social media is killing our young people. It's it's leading to suicides. It's it's leading them to question their. I mean, making them depressed. And um, right. we, you know, parental involvement, getting a parent's permission to have a social media site for a minor. That's just reasonable policy. It's just the beginning, and so. All of these bills are out there, and I would encourage you to become informed, uh, get involved, because if you don't make a difference, the difference that gets made may be something that you don't like. I mean, believe me, the other side, they speak up, they, they yell, they, they show up, and we need to do the same, uh, and we th- we're very grateful for everybody that does participate. But Tanya, thank you uh, so much for telling this story today. God bless you. Um, I just I want to pray Thank for you, you and for your family, yeah. and uh, just uh, because this is something that a lot of people I guarantee can uh, associate with. Because even even now, um, marijuana use is a problem in South Carolina, mm-hmm. and we're just going to pour right. gasoline on it. it, it it's it's yes, amazing. We are. Lord, we come before you today in Jesus' name, and we j- we just want to thank you that you are a God who loves us a God who is sovereign. You're, you're a God who delivers that when we run into issues that are difficult for us, when we cry out to you from the depth of our hurt and our pain, Lord, you answer. You come and you make a difference. God, I pray that you would speak to hearts across um, South Carolina right now, mm-hmm. that you would raise up people that are, are good people that know that these things, we need these things in our state to protect our minor, our children. And, and I just pray, Father, that there would be an outpouring of people who say enough that we, yes. we need to protect our children from, from gender surgery. We need to protect our children from pornography. We need to protect them from the adverse effects of social media. We need to make sure that we're not giving them marijuana access to it in a way that could be more destructive now than ever. And we just simply pray for all these things. And Lord, I just want to thank you for the restoration that you brought to this family, to this young man, how you've helped him to get rid of this addiction to be able to be transformed and now getting on with his life with the help and the love of his family. Lord, that's, uh, that's what you do. You're in the redemption business. And we thank you for that and for your great power in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Dr. Beam. I th- appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. It's great to have you on and we'll look forward to seeing you later. All right. All Thanks. Right. Yeah. Bye-bye. Uh, Tanya Shelnut, uh, just an amazing story of um, how her son was able to overcome uh, what was, and she had, had said, it became an addiction very quickly uh, to marijuana. You know, I've, I've told you uh, before my story, and my story is, you know, I was, I was in college when I started using marijuana, um, and we're talking about at that particular time, it's, this would have been back in the seventies. You're talking about 5% THC. Now we're talking about 20%. And we're, and there was no, there, there was no danger really for me in the 1970s that somebody was going to come along and lace what, um, I was smoking marijuana at that time with fentanyl so that my life was going to be in danger. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't become really a Christ follower, a born-again believer, until 1984. And I graduated from college in 1980. And you may say, well, how did you, if it, if it wasn't the, the power of God, and I, and I would argue that God was watching over me. I mean, God knew the steps that I was going to take. He knew what my life was going to turn out to be. And I would argue that God did intervene, uh, even when I was not serving him. Um, but I realized, I mean, I came to the realization that I liked being high. I mean, to the point that if I didn't stop using marijuana, it was going to become a debilitating problem for me. I mean, it was going to, it was going to cause me just to sit around and want to smoke dope all day. And so I was able to, to give it up and, um, you know, and, and, and another, I mean, big part of that, I ran into the, met the woman that I was going to marry and that I've spent 44, we've been married almost 44 years. Come July, I'll be 44 years. And we dated for, for about three years when we were in school. And, you know, her influence over me, uh, even though at the time she was not a believer, um, but she was, she was a good girl. And, um, you know, it, it had a, she had a positive impact or a positive influence over me as well. But um, it, these, it, it could have gone the other way. I mean, I could have, it, there's, there are moments in our life that are pivot points. And sometimes we make a good decision. Sometimes we make a bad one. And there are bad decisions that we can recover from, and they have short-term consequences. And there are bad decisions that have lifelong consequences. And I, if I had not turned from my marijuana use when I did in college, I have no doubt that would, it would have had lifelong consequences for me. It's marijuana. Where do we get to the point? How do we get blinded to the fact that being under the influence of a drug is not, I mean, it's not a good thing. How can we be blinded to that? Now, I know people are screaming. I, I, I remember <laughs> these are magic headphones. When you scream at me, I can hear you even though you're not here. Um, I, I, I get it when there are plenty of people that are taking prescription drugs. But now we're beginning to acknowledge that prescription drugs are a problem if they're not properly managed. And there's a big difference between a pain reliever that is given under a doctor's supervision 
where when you go to the drugstore, you have to show an ID or you have to demonstrate, you know, there, there are all kinds of safeguards in place to keep you from becoming addicted to pain relievers, to pain medication. And, and it's a huge problem. I'm not going to deny that. But why, if, if that is a huge problem, it seems to me that that just points to the fact that we have a tendency to get addicted to stuff that's mind-altering. Why do we want to throw something else into the mix and call it medicine and then create another set of addicts, another set of problems that we're going to have to deal with, just like the people in Colorado are dealing with those problems and other states that have gone to recreational marijuana use. Uh, which is the path that South Carolina is going to be on. We're going to have Representative John McCravey on Thursday to come and talk about this from a, a legal and legislative viewpoint. Uh, but I wanted you to hear that personal story today from my friend Tanya. And uh, I would encourage you to pray for her. Um, pray for everybody who's dealing with this, because this is uh, it, it's a serious problem um, in our culture. And we in, in South Carolina... You know, we, what the state determines is okay sends a message to the culture. Now, I, and, and I know that people have to make their own moral decisions about issues, and the state can't be the moral issue decider for you. Um, you know, but what we determine, what the state collectively says when we have elected representatives, remember, we're a representative republic. We have a we-the-people government. So when we the people decide that something is okay and that something is destructive, um, it can be very, very destructive. So I'd just like for us to think about that as we, as we think about this in our minds. All right, um, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about this um, presidential poll that was conducted by historians. Noah, Noah Rothman's got a great piece at National Review today about this. Actually, it was published um, yesterday. And he, he talks about our influential historians who rank presidents, and they do this every year. Let me, let me just read this um, two paragraphs for you, and, and then I'll look at the poll, and we'll talk about some of the results. Rothman says, if the historians who contributed their alleged expertise to compelling a list measuring overall presidential greatness brought any history with them into their analysis— that's hard to discern from the product that they produced. My colleagues will take the list to task for its author's revisionism, but it seems that the point of this exercise wasn't an objective assessment of American presidential legacies. It was to convey to the list readers that Donald Trump is bad. And I believe that's true for a lot of what the experts are doing today, just like we were talking about with Roland Fry. I mean, he's a researcher who comes to the wrong conclusion if you're a progressive. You don't like his research because it doesn't reveal a truth that you want to embrace. So you don't mind coming after him because he found something that's true, but then again, the truth in the culture that we live in now can be just twisted or ignored if it doesn't meet the criteria of those who are the cultural guards, so to speak. And we look at scientists as experts in the field. I mean, and, and the same thing with these historians, the same thing um, with people that do research in a lot of different areas. Most of the time, they are 
more influenced by progressive ideas in the left than they are the right. And this skews their expertise. I mean, it, it reveals a bias that they're obviously engaged in. According back to the article with Rothman, according to our most influential historians, Trump earned himself a spot at the very bottom of their list, registering relative greatness in the Oval Office. Perhaps owing to a latent sense of shame among practicing academics, Joe Biden managed only to be named America's 14th greatest president, just ahead of Woodrow Wilson. Now, does anybody think that Joe Biden is the 14th best president that we've ever had? I mean, right now, his approval numbers are the lowest of any president at this point in his presidency. And they've been going south since he was inaugurated. So has his mental acuity and physical ability. And yet, these guys get together and say, after just, and, and by the way, history, if you're a historian, you have to allow the context of history to drive conclusions that you make about a particular leader. And that's particularly true for a president of the United States. It takes time for their policies to germinate, to see have they been long-term good for America or not. Joe Biden's the current president. How can he be 14th on this list? Because we, a lot of his policies have been achieved through executive order, and those executive orders have been overturned by the courts, not just the Supreme Court. Thankfully, the Supreme Court has overturned many, but even the lower courts have refused to support President Biden's idea of how America is supposed to work. And yet one historian said that he deserves to be highly ranked simply because he saved the country from Donald Trump. This is the kind of bias that you get. I mean, they can say things like this where normally a historian would never say that because that's a clear political bias that's being expressed. But they know in the culture that we live in now, they can get away with it. And so they do. All right, let's, let, let, let's look at the list here. I, I've, I had it. Yeah, here we go. All right, number one, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln's bounced around. I mean, he's been number one uh, before, and at, at that I, I have no argument. I mean, you, when you have a president that dealt with a, a civil war, I mean, essentially the country was tearing itself apart. And did Lincoln do everything in, perfectly? Was uh, Were there things that... I think he could have done better. Well, of course. Um, and I think Lincoln would say that if Lincoln could speak to us about it. But to rank him number one does make some sense. Number two is is uh, F.D. Roosevelt. So, and he's up one. He was third, and Washington was second. Now Washington's been relegated to third. I don't think Roosevelt... Now, Roosevelt, if, if you want to analyze him from the standpoint of leadership in World War II in terms of working with Churchill and, unfortunately, Stalin, uh, working with uh, the Allies in order to defeat Germany and Japan. There were a lot of hard decisions that had to be made, um, and, and Roosevelt probably deserves some high marks for that. But the marks for getting us out of the Depression that he often gets a lot of credit for, Roosevelt's policies didn't get us out of the Depression. Yes, 
it alleviated the suffering of some for the short term, but the long-term getting out of the Depression was created by World War II. I mean, it just, the, the economy got transformed. America's place in the world was transformed. Our manufacturing capabilities were greatly enhanced. You know, I'm listening to a, a, biography, a biography right now. It's actually not a biography, but it's a, it's a, a book about the history of the air war over Europe and the 8th Air Force in particular. And one of the things that the Germans could never match, and it's the thing that they feared the most, and the Japanese, for that matter, in World War II, was the massive production capability of the United States and Great Britain. In one year, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was able to manufacture 44,000 fighter planes and bombers. In that same year, the United States and Great Britain combined manufactured well over 150,000. See, that kind of manufacturing superiority, the ability to turn out the weapons of war, is one of the things that won World War II. And, and so when, when you think about that level of manufacturing and what that did for putting people back to work and creating jobs, you can see that it wasn't Roosevelt that saved the economy. Um, and, I mean, it's kind of ironic that one of the most horrible events of the 20th century became something that was actually allowed a lot of Americans to lift themselves out of the depression that they were in. So, anyway, Roosevelt's second. Then Teddy Roosevelt, fourth. Um, fifth was, uh, of course, Jefferson's always going to rank, rank high. Uh, six was Truman. Truman's um, moved up one between 2018 and 2024. Obama, Barack Obama, is ranked seventh. In the top, he's in the top ten uh, all time for presidents between Truman and Eisenhower, who ranks eighth. Now, does anybody think that's where uh, President Obama belongs? I mean, look, uh, honestly, I don't think President Obama was a terrible president, but he's not in the top 10. I mean, I think any reasonable assessment would have him somewhere maybe in the 20s, or, but certainly not ranked seventh between Truman and Eisenhower. And then the next one's really going to get you. Now, number nine is Lyndon Johnson. I mean, Johnson basically had a failed presidency with the only success that he really had coming off of the sympathy of Kennedy's assassination. I mean, he was able to get a lot of Kennedy's um, agenda through, but it was mainly being driven by Pete, the fact, not so much by his leadership. Now, he was hard-charging. Um, there's no question uh, Johnson knew how politics worked, and he was willing to wield whatever power he had to get things done. And that certainly helped him in the environment that he was in in the 1960s. But the way he handled the Vietnam War was a disaster. It was so bad that he, he, he decided he was not going to run again. Um, I, I mean, you know, he, he withdrew himself from the possibility of getting another term 
after he served a term that he got elected to. Um, and, and, you know, of course, he stepped in when Kennedy was assassinated. He got elected, and then he chose not to run. Uh, so it, you know, or Johnson, and, and it was basically, basically the Vietnam War that destroyed him. Uh, Kennedy is at, uh, ranked at 10th, Madison 11th, Bill Clinton 12th on the list. Uh, then you've got Reagan down at 16. Uh, some others, yeah, Jimmy Carter is 22nd. George W. Bush, 32nd. And then you get all the way down to the bottom, 45, 45th, is Trump. So I think Rothman's right when he analyzes this. He's basically, he's saying, look, um, the whole purpose of putting this out was to slam Trump. I mean, it was to, to be able to say to the American people, look, uh, you're thinking about this guy running for re-election. He's the worst president in the view of all these historians that we've ever had compared to Joe Biden, who's number 14. Do you really think that people are going to believe that? And the answer is no. I mean, even the people who read this and find out about it, which is not going to be the majority, but they're not going to believe it. They're going to see it for what it is. They're going to see that this is expert bias. All right. Um, Rothman goes on. He says, this list is reminiscent of other efforts to manipulate public perception via the selective deployment of, quote, expertise. And I remember this. Back in 2018, at the height of the Me Too movement, the Thomas Reuters Foundation surveyed 550 specialists in the field of women's issues with the aim of assessing the best and worst places on earth for women. And much to its shame, the foundation found that the U.S. was one of the most nightmarish places on the planet to be born with two X chromosomes, Rothman says. When it comes to sexual assault and coercion, rape as a weapon of war, human trafficking, and general harassment, the experts listed America alongside Syria, Somalia, Yemen, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I mean, insanity. Just pure insanity. And then you had The Economist. They had something they call the Intelligence Unit that annually ranks global democracies based on a subjective set of criteria, downgraded America's standing in 2017. Now, what happened in 2016 that would cause The Economist to downgrade America's standing? Yeah, that's right. Donald Trump got elected president. So... The economists settled on compulsory voting as one of the key metrics by which full democracies can be judged. That's how the institution determined that places like Uruguay, which was is a young republic that emerged from a military dictatorship in 1985, and it actually has their archives sealed following a court-ordered amnesty of members of the military. And yet... According to these experts at The Economist that they talk to, it has, Uruguay has a richer democracy than the one that we have here, the, the democracy, the constitutional republic that we have here in the United States. This is all nonsense. And it's embarrassing when experts decide that they want to take history, whether it, they're revising it or whether they're just simply 
taking statistics and facts and twisting them to make a political point, they embarrass themselves. And Rothman's right about that, and it happens often. All right, um, one quick other story that I wanted to get to today that I mentioned in the opening. Um, this we, we have some disadvantages, should I say, for Democrats and for Republicans going into the presidential election. And this is coming today for also from Nora Rothman. Um, he was on with the editors of National Review, which is a podcast. By the way, I'd recommend it. Um, it's interesting to hear those guys talking about politics. And there's not a, you know, you would think, well, conservative website, uh, they're all going to be on the same page. They all work there at National Review. But there's quite a diversity of opinion that comes out of that podcast. And it's one of the things that makes it interesting. Uh, but here's what, here's what Rothman says that is the disadvantage for Republicans as far as President Trump is concerned. He says campaigns matter. Republicans are likely to be outspent by their Democratic opponents this election cycle. I think that's true up and down the board. I think Republicans are going to get outspent by Democrats. And if you think money doesn't matter in an election, it does. The more the bigger megaphone you have, the better chance you hear of your message getting out and getting into the minds of the voters. Some people vote for the last political message that they heard, whatever that was. And so you need to be able to own the airways. You need to be able to at, at least have your message being heard as much and as many times as the opponent's. And that's not likely to happen in this election cycle. Re Democrats are outraising Republicans across the board right now. Um, also, you're going to have our candidate, who is Donald Trump. He's, he's the candidate. And no disrespect to Nikki Haley. She was here having a rally in Greer last night. Uh, she's still campaigning. And she's still 31, 32 points behind in her home state. Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. But he's going to be compelled to spend more and more time in courtrooms as the year goes by, which is going to play differently with the general electorate than it does among Republican primary voters. And I think that's true. I, Republican primary voters see every courtroom challenge, every um, setback in the courtroom to Donald Trump as another reason to support him. But that's not what the general electorate sees. The people who are going to make most of the, they're, they're going to make the difference, I think, primarily in this race. So if, if, if Trump's going to win, he's going to have to do one of two things. He's going to have to either convince voters who cast their ballots against him in 2020 to vote for him, which that's going to be a high bar, or he has to remake the electorate with low propensity voters who are unlikely to be as drawn to his campaign as they were in 2016 now that he is the representing pretty much the unified Republican Party. And barring unforeseeable events that shake up the race, the general election is going to be tough, I think. Even though right now they're neck and neck. And I know Trump is ahead. It depends on which poll you look at nationally. Trump's ahead in some polls. Biden's ahead in some. Some, they're dead heat. But they're all within the margin of error. Now, let's look at the Democrats. They, they've got a boatload of problems as well that could lead to Trump being elected. A Gallup survey earlier from this month, it, it talks about the Democrats' party's 
problems. The Democrat Party's wide lead over Republicans and black Americans' party preferences has shrunk by 20 points over the past three years. That's 20 points down in three years. Republicans are gaining among African-American voters. And that, that's a trend that could continue and could help Trump get elected. Democrats lead among Hispanic adults and adults age 18 to 29, but that support is still sliding. They're only holding, Democrats only hold a modest edge among Hispanic um, adults and adults age 18 to 29. And then, whereas Democrats were at parity with Republicans among men in 2009, among college-educated adult, non-college-educated educated adults, as recently as 2019, they're now in the red with both groups. So the, right now, men much more prefer Donald Trump than Joe Biden. And that was not the case for the Democrat Party as a whole until as recently as 2019. Um, Democrats used to be able to count on the vestiges of the New Deal coalition to deliver the support of a sizable number of voters without a college education. And in 1999... Working-class Americans identified more as Democrat than Republicans by 14 points. You know what that gap is today? It's exactly turned on its head. Republican, Working-class Americans identify with the Republican Party 14% more than the Democrat Party. Today, only 8% more voters between the ages of 18 and 29 associate themselves with the Democrat Party than with the GOP. Now, that's an 8% margin. That's an 8% advantage with younger voters for Democrats, but it's the smallest the gap has been in a presidential election year. Now, that's incredible to me because what do you, what, what's the common knowledge or wisdom is, oh, young voters, they'll never vote for Trump. Well, right now, only 8% more 18 to 29 voters say they're going to vote for Biden. And that number shrinking. So it's going to be an interesting election. I mean, I, there are other things here um, that we, we could talk about. Nate Silver's observations, you know, Silver, for example, is talking about the fact that the economy is improving some, but most Americans don't feel that. And even though the numbers look better, they're not necessarily better for the average American family. And that could, and, and, and by the way, even where people say in surveys that they feel a little bit better about the economy, they're not giving Biden credit for that because the whole Bidenomics argument isn't working. So this is going to be, I mean, it, it's going to be a, a tough, interesting election. And I hope that you'll listen um, to this program <laughs> as we go forward. Uh, to get more information about the election. And, and we're going to track it. I mean, we're going to be here. We're going to be doing this um, every morning, 7.30 to 8.30, YouTube and Facebook Live. And then, like I said, you'll be able to get the podcast, um, oh, I'd say within an hour. And if you listen to the podcast, if you follow it and you like it, please leave me a good review. And if you like the show on Facebook, please do me a favor and share it and like it and do all the things that cause maybe some other people to like it too. 
Thanks for listening today. Again, thanks to my friend, Tanya Shellnut. I appreciate her being willing to come on and tell a very difficult, hard story about her son, but a wonderful story in that he's come through uh, his issues with marijuana and is doing much better. So we praise the Lord for that. You have a great day and a better day tomorrow. And start that day off tomorrow joining me at 730 on YouTube and Facebook. God bless you.